The text for the sermon this morning comes from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 14, and we find our text in verses 8 through 22. We'll be touching on everything in these in this text. Uh, we'll, uh, Lord willing, uh, spend another week, especially considering um, uh, the response of the people here to uh, Paul and Barnabas and uh, uh, their uh, preaching to them. But um, we'll be looking uh, today uh, at several things, especially pertaining to uh, the miracle of the healing of, of this man. So let's uh, hear God's word as we find it in Acts 14, 8 through 22. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, They tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. With these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. Next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Ministry of the church can be a lot like experiencing turbulence when you're flying. When you fly, you you expect, if you're knowledgeable about uh, flying anyway, you expect a degree of turbulence. You you hope it doesn't happen, but you, you know enough to at least expect it. When a church is laboring together in the gospel, we're all expecting that there are difficulties that are going to arise. We're not naive, but know that the church in this world is supposed to have hardship. 
After all, we just read Acts 14, where Paul himself said, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. We are the church militants. And any student of the New Testament knows this. Huge portions of the New Testament are, are written to, to address problems in the church, problems and sins in the early church. But even though we expect turbulence when we fly, when it does happen, when it's particularly strong, we become concerned. We get afraid. After all, it can be somewhat terrifying to be shaken back and forth and up and down when you're thousands of feet above the ground. And sometimes in that moment when we're experiencing that uh, really strong turbulence, we, we say, well, I'll never fly again. As soon as I, I land on the ground, that's it. And for the unsuspecting and unprepared believer, opposition within and without the church can likewise be discouraging. Either person experiencing turbulence, flying, the unsuspecting believer can be surprised and fearful at difficulty in the church who's longing for the nice, smooth, and comfortable journey to glory. He earnestly wanted the glorified, triumphant church, but instead found himself in the beleaguered, militant church. He found members fighting with each other. He found sin and failure among its members. And the surprise at this the surprise at what the church actually often is can produce fear. It can produce an emotional response. It can, can produce discontentment that looks with often eager longing to another church that doesn't seem to have any problems. For all the grass is so often greener for us on the other side. But perhaps more important, such difficulty, such issues can even make the believer question the very power of God. Is God able to work in his church? Is God able to revive and grow his church? Yet, amid turbulent ministry, amid difficulties, the church needs to believe once again in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see this exhortation in our text to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Here in our text, the power of the living God is contrasted with, with the useless things, the, the vain gods of Hermes and Zeus. So let's turn our attention to Acts 14 this morning, hearing exhortations to believe amid turbulent ministry. First thing you must believe as we look at this text is you must believe that the power of the Holy Spirit saves cripples. And to see this point, we, we must understand what Luke is doing in Acts. We need to remind ourselves what's going on in this book. 
As Luke wrote the book of Acts, he did so with a specific structure, and we've noted this. Luke follows that structure of Acts 1 verse 8, of the disciples being witnesses of Christ in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and now in the uttermost parts of the world. But another aspect of the structure of Acts is that the first half of Acts focuses largely on the work and ministry of the Apostle Peter. And we see that with Peter's uh, preaching after Pentecost, uh, Peter uh, being imprisoned, Peter uh, going and, 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 and spreading the gospel in Samaria, Peter going and spreading the gospel to Cornelius' household. After that second half of the book, it, the, the focus shifts from, from the main character, or, or uh, at least outwardly, the main character being Peter. He's the, the main human character. The main human character, sh- character shifts from being Peter to now Paul. And we've, we've already spent a good amount of time focusing on the Apostle Paul. We, we've talked about his conversion. We've seen uh, his uh, we're now ending, nearing the end of his first missionary journey. Paul has gone from Antioch to Cyprus to Pisidia to Iconium, and now he's in the city of Lystra. And it is in Lystra that Luke tells us the history of Paul healing a cripple. And this is a history that has remarkable similarity to the history we have of Peter healing the lame man by the beautiful gate of the temple in Acts 3. Now, unbelieving Bible critics will tell us that Luke is just reusing the same story here in uh, Life of Paul. But that's uh, foolish nonsense. That's the foolish theories of unbelievers. What we have here is inspired history. These events really happens. And, you know, as, as Luke, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the history of Acts, he did so with specific purposes, with, with specific intents. And one of the intents that Luke has is he wants us to understand that both Peter and Paul are apostles of Jesus Christ. Luke, Luke's clearly done this with Peter with all the miracles that Peter performs, with his preaching, we're left without a doubt that Peter has indeed been called by God. Now, Luke is also doing the same thing with Paul, and and he highlights certain miracles that that coincide with what Peter's miracles were, because the arguments were already been established for Peter. Now we need the argument established about Paul, that Paul indeed is an apostle of Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit's intent as the ultimate author of Scripture that we would know the apostolic authority of both Peter and Paul. But more important than that message, more important than the the argument for their apostolic authority is that Luke wants us to know that this same spirit who healed the man in Acts 3 is the same spirit who heals this cripple in Acts 14. I've already mentioned that this lesson is taught to us uh, by Paul providentially having the same miracle, the same uh, or very similar miracle to Peter. 
Just like Peter healed a man who had been lame from his mother's womb. So Paul here heals a man who had been crippled from his mother's womb. Neither of these men had ever walked before. They had never taken a single step in their life. Yet Luke tells us that Paul, like Peter, looks intently at the man. He sees he has faith to be healed. He says with a loud voice, stand up, rise, and walk. Words of our text, stand up straight on your feet. Just like the man in Acts 3. This man too jumps up on his feet and immediately is able to walk. He's not having to figure out his balance. No, this is a perfect miracle. Right now, Micah, this coincided quite nicely, Micah is learning how to walk right now. And it's a very slow process. It started with him taking a few shaky steps and then falling down. And now, now he can take 10 to 20 pretty confident steps, but he's still uh, with his arms outstretched trying to keep his balance. He had to learn to walk. But these men, even though they had never walked in their life, were able to, to walk and, and jump and, and leap for joy. This is a, a, a full and complete miracle, not just of healing, of, of function, not just able to move their, their legs and, and their feet, but they have the ability as well. This is full, complete healing. And this is the power of God. It was a power that first regenerated the cripple's heart such that he had the response of faith to Paul's preaching. After all, what spiritually dead soul can understand the proclamation of the gospel unless the, first, unless the, the spirit first revives and, and regenerates that soul? You see here, there's a hidden character in our history. There's a hidden character here. No mention is made of the Spirit in our text. And you might wonder, how can Pastor Stephen preach a sermon on the Holy Spirit when there's not even mention of the Holy Spirit made in this text? Yet, like Jesus said, we would. We see the facts of the Holy Spirit. No man can see the Spirit. He just sees the effects of the Spirit. Just as no man sees the wind, we see the effects that the wind produces. We see the leaves moving in the trees. Similarly here, we see the effects of the Spirit. The effects of a man having faith in response to Paul's preaching. The effects of a man Heeding that call to believe, taking hold of the promise of the gospel, and the call of Paul to stand up straight on your feet. By all earthly and human accounts, if the Spirit had not been working, it would have been utterly foolish for this man to stand up on his feet. Even if he had been able to, he would have fallen promptly right back down. This isn't a foolish command for a man who the Spirit has worked in, for man that has been healed by the power of God's Spirit. 
And just as we would be mistaken, if we just saw the human characters in this story. No, we need to see the, 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 the Holy Spirit here. We need to see God at work. We also need to be sure that we don't make the mistake of, of just seeing here the healing of someone's body. Instead, what we have here is a declaration of clear spiritual realities. We talked a lot about signs and seals in our Sunday school hour. Well, here we have, have a sign of what God does spiritually. The bleak situation of this cripple presents a, the sobering picture of, of the bleakness of our fallen condition. This man had been lame for, for many years. Completely unable to walk. What a picture of our, our moral, complete moral inability, or our, our complete and, and total depravity apart from grace. We are spiritual cripples. Unable to walk, we are lost in the filthy manure of our sins. Yet we are shown here that no matter the sin, no matter how dire things are, the promise of the gospel holds true that whosoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. This cripple walks as God saves us in the depravity of our sins. God can heal a lifelong cripple. Surely God has the power to forgive our sins. And that's something that Luke talks about in his gospel as he narrates the story of, of Jesus healing the paralyzed man. The power of the Holy Spirit is a power that saves to the uttermost problems for this cripple were very bleak. He had never, ever walked before. Yet here he is, walking and standing and praising God. What encouragement for us amid the turbulent ministry of the church. Here we have a, a bold declaration of the power of God. That God's Spirit saves it doesn't just save those who, are, who got mostly have things right and they've got a few things they've got to work on. No, he saves those who are spiritually lame. He's not looking for the easy people to save. No, he saves those who are filled with, with sin and iniquity. And he's, he's pleased to save to the uttermost. An encouragement for us amid the turbulent ministry of the church. We are by no means a perfect church. All of us have sins that we must answer to God for. And yet we can be assured this morning that if we confess those sins to God, He will certainly forgive us of our sins. He will heal us of our iniquities. He will heal our spiritual lameness. If we're looking God, to grow us in holiness. We can be sure that the Holy Spirit will indeed grant us the ability to walk by His grace. And so, believe the Spirit has a power to save cripples, but we must also believe that the power of the Spirit is not dependent upon our environments. Now it's on many of 
our minds. If you've not already asked the question, you will likely at some point ask it. Is there something wrong with this church? You have the sad duty of dismissing a family this morning. You might wonder if perhaps you need to consider joining a different church. After all, this church seems to have problem after problem. You might wonder what God is doing with the church here. These are important and complex questions that ultimately have us asking questions about the nature of the church in this world. What is the church in this world? Yet I I want to redirect that question initially to ask you, where is your faith? I want to ask you, where is your faith? Are you placing your faith in a church? Are you putting your faith in God? I'm convinced that one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit saw fit to include this miracle in the Scriptures is to encourage us in his testament to the power of God. Here, Paul is deep in enemy territory. He's far away from the land of promise. He's surrounded by a superstitious pagan people, and he doesn't even understand their language. Yet the Holy Spirit is still able to heal in this area, surrounded by the ungodly. You might read the account of Peter's miracle in Acts 3 and not think much of it. After all, that lame man is in the land of promise. He's in Jerusalem, the city of cities, the place where God has shown miracle after miracle, the the place where God has shown his love again and again. If that were not enough, that he was in Jerusalem, he's right beside the temple, the place where God dwells in a special manner. Of course God is going to be able to heal a man there. If God can heal anybody, he can heal a man right outside his holy temple. And this miracle recorded for us in Acts 14 clearly demonstrates to us that God's power is not bound to a specific geographical area or a specific area that we might think, oh, this is the place where God's worked in the past, so he's going to work again. That's not the power of God. God's power is as effectual to save in Jewish Jerusalem as it is in, in pagan Lystra. The same holds true today. God is able to work the wonder of salvation in Oklahoma City as much as he is able to do so wherever you might think the perfect church is, whether that's Dallas or Stillwater, Kansas or Pennsylvania, Canada or Scotland. Spirit is able to work wherever he wills. And the question is not, can God do it? The question really is one of faith. Do you believe that God has the power to grow his church? You see, we wonder at the power of God to work here in Oklahoma City. We read so much of the revivals 
We read and study the Puritans. We long for those days to become our days. We sometimes even wish we were back in those time periods. We look for a perfect church, and when we don't find it, we look for that perfect church in the past and and discontentedly wish we were back there. We think, if only I were a member of Samuel Rutherford's church, well, then I would have things figured out. If only I were a member of of George Gillespie's church, well, then I, I would know something. Or maybe if I sat under the preaching of Thomas Watson, then my life would be more holy. My life would turn around. And yet that's a type of superstitious unbelief. It's more of a trust in, in a particular church than, than, and a particular environment than a trust in the power and might of God. The reality is God didn't place you back then. God placed you here in Oklahoma City and he calls you to faithfully serve him. Not, not in the past, not wishing for days of yesteryear, but he has called you to faithfully serve him here and now, here today. God has called you to believe in his power, to build his church, that his promise indeed is true, that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You believe the power of the Spirit is not bound by environments with When we see our sins, we can so often be quick to blame our environments. We think, well, God cannot work here. How true is that so often with our own sin? When we struggle with our spiritual lives, when we struggle with reading our Bible every day, when we struggle with sin, we can sometimes get caught up in the the idea that the problem is my circumstances. The problem is my environment. And we think, if I just change my church environment, then everything will be all right, and I finally will grow in holiness. And especially if I surround myself with holy people, then I myself must automatically become holy. That's a superstitious idea. The problem so often isn't your environment. Rather, the problem is your heart. Your heart would rather play video games than read the Bible. Your heart would rather hate your wife than sacrificially love her. Your heart would rather rebel against your husband than submit to his leadership. Your heart would rather take the easy road in conflict of of holding grudges and believing in falsehood than the road of confronting sin and discovering the truth. Your heart would rather love the members of a church you only know over Facebook or social media than the local church you are members of. It's often very convenient for us to doubt the power of God in our specific circumstances. Just consider how convenient it would have been for Paul after being stoned almost to death to say, well, God can't work there. Uh, you know, God's powerful, but 
This city is just far too wicked for God to work in. What do we see Paul doing instead? Paul gets up that morning and he goes back into the city and gets Barnabas. And and then they depart from the city, but on their return journey, they go back to the city and they find a church there. And they strengthen and encourage the disciples there. It's often very convenient for us to doubt the power of God. Especially when we're not doing well spiritually. We want an easy fix that does not necessarily deal with our own personal problems. That easy fix is changing our environment which has a sad reality of often distracting us from the true spiritual issues in our heart that are, that are at play. We change our environment, and then the, the core issues are not actually dealt with. And we need to understand, too, that this isn't necessarily a new sin. The saints in Philippi struggled with it as much as we do today. It wasn't easy for them to be, it was very easy for them to be holy when the Apostle Paul was with them. But such holiness was ultimately tied to, to their environmental factors, not to the Holy Spirit who indwelt them. And Paul had to warn them, exhort them in Philippians 1:27, saying, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, that whether I am present or am absent. may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. We all, it's often very easy for us to act pious and holy when we're around holy people. Of uh, Joel Beakey or Paul Washer was to come into town and stay at at our house we would probably live our lives in, in different ways. And then when they left, well, we'd go back to our old patterns of life. Paul urges the church to holy living, not just when he's present, not just when it's easy and, and convenient and, and good for us to do it, especially when he is absent. That is the mark of holiness. Not what we do when when others are are looking intently at our lives, but what we are doing when we're all alone by ourselves. When it's just us and God. That is the test of our holiness. Now, if any of what I've said describes you this morning, be encouraged. It's easy for us to, to hear that. And, and yes, that's true of me. And, and be very discouraged that, um, no, I, I do act differently when other people are around me. I do act more holy when I'm at church than when I'm at home. But be encouraged this morning because no matter how bleak might be the Spirit is able to save and to heal. 
That's, that's the message of our text, the power of the Spirit to, to heal and save no matter the environment, no, no matter our sins, no matter how bleak things might be with the church. The Spirit is able, powerful, to save, to grow, to sanctify, whether that be religious Jerusalem or, or pagan Lystra. And this grants us great hope as a beleaguered church. Our confidence is not in the church itself. Our confidence is in God. Our, our faith and our hope is in God himself. Believe in God. Trust in God. Spirit is able to build you up in holiness here in Oklahoma City as much as he is able to do it anywhere else. I want to add a, a bit of nuance to that. Even though the power of the Spirit is not bound by environment, he does make use of the means of grace. He uses specific instruments to achieve that salvation. Growth and sanctification does not just happen out of the blue. God has given his church means of grace, the preaching of word, the sacraments, and prayer just to list uh, the, the, the three most important ones. We see these means even being used in our text with Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel and the cripple re- responding to that preaching with faith. If Paul had never come and preached, well, that cripple would never have had the faith in God. He would never have been healed. But the Holy Spirit uses means. Faith doesn't just come out of thin air. It comes about as a result of the preaching of the gospel. And because God uses means, we should surround ourselves certainly with godly saints who encourage us, hold us accountable, and exhort us. We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together for this very reason. The Christian cannot be extraordinary if the Christian was able to grow in a vacuum. No, God has put us in a body saying of, from Psalm 48 of, of the beauty of Zion. We're to, to consider the, the safety that Zion, the church, affords the people of God because God is within his church. There's a special blessing when we gather for corporate worship. Blessing that's unique from our private worship. There, there's a, a, a blessing with the church. And this is why uh, Paul and Barnabas, at the end of their missionary journey, went and strengthened the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. They needed that. They needed the means of grace to come to them through, through the preaching and, and through shepherding. They did not just abandon them and, and leave them on their own to, to figure things out. Oh, we, we planted all these churches, and well, that's it. Hands off. You guys figure it out. We've given you the foundations. No, they went back and strengthened and equipped them. We read in verse 21, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. In other words, don't be discouraged. 
that this is difficult. Don't be discouraged that you're not getting along. Don't be discouraged that the world is opposing you and, and persecuting you. Don't be discouraged that these Judaizers are coming in and telling you, well, you have to be circumcised and you have to do all these Old Testament things to be saved. Now hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to the, to the power of God. Believe in God. Encourage the church. They nourished it with means of grace. And similarly, we need others to press us on and grow us. And this is one reason why local church membership is so crucial. One of the things that made the the Scottish Reformation and the evangelical revivals of the 17 and 1800s, what they were was people recognizing the importance of those ordinary means of grace. Not sit around gloomy and depressed, wishing, wishing for other days or, or wishing for for something better. No, instead they, they engaged in those ordinary duties of, of fasting and prayer, of, of attending upon the means of grace, of hearing, hearing the preached word. They were faithful in small things, and they believed in the power of God to change his church, to reform and build her up. They were faithful in their present circumstances. They trust in the power of God's Spirit to work through these ordinary means. And so we have to recognize that the Spirit uses means, and we, we, we need to know that. We also need to make sure we, we use those means well. Well, we, we spoke this morning of, of the sacraments and, and how the sacraments don't just work because we take them. No, we need the work of the Holy Spirit and we need to uh, uh, receive those sacraments by faith. It's one thing for God to give us the means of preaching and prayer and the sacraments, another for us to make the right use of those means. You must attend upon the means of grace that God has given with faithfulness, with prayer, with preparation, with, with faith, and with application if you are to grow in your spiritual life. And we see this in our text as well. The cripple did not just hear Paul's preaching and, and just like that he was healed. It wasn't just, well, the sound waves entered his ears and suddenly he had a, a, a healed leg. No, he heard Paul's preaching. And he made application of that preaching to his own life. He said, well, if the gospel is true, if what Paul is preaching is true, if Jesus Christ is risen again from the dead, well, that must mean, by God's power, my leg can be healed. And he believes, and, and Paul recognizes his belief, and by the power of the Spirit, the man's, man is healed. He made application of Paul's preaching. He made right use of the means of grace. We, too, must make right use of the means of grace. And if you're not growing under the preaching here, if you're, you're struggling, we as your elders want to hear about it so that we can help you. 
so that you, we can encourage you how and, 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 and shepherd you and how to make right use of these means. But it can be a dangerous thing to think, well, I'm not growing under preaching here, so maybe I will grow under it elsewhere. After all, I, I, I like this man's preaching better. Now, I, I can be sympathetic, certainly, to that argument. I am by far not uh, the best preacher in the world. We all have our preferences when it comes to preaching. The type of preacher I might feel most edified and encouraged by may not be the same as you. Even the, the Lyconians had a preference. We see that with how they, they differentiate Paul and Barnabas. They say, well, well, Barnabas, you can be Zeus, but Paul, you're Hermes because you're the best speaker. You're, you're the most eloquent. Paul is likely a more gifted preacher than Barnabas. There, there, is a, there is indeed a subjective element to the preaching of the word. And yet the question should not be, well, who do I prefer in the preaching? The question is, is the gospel being faithfully preached? Is the gospel being rightly expounded and applied? The gospel is being faithfully preached and regardless of preference, we can still grow in Christ because, praise God, our growth in Christ isn't dependent upon men. Our growth is dependent upon the work of the Spirit in our lives. Now, to be completely clear, sometimes it is necessary to change churches because the means of grace are not being used. False churches can certainly hinder spiritual growth. Churches where there is spiritual abuse, churches where the gospel is not preached, where their sacraments are not rightly administered, where church discipline is not practiced, where the three marks of, of a visible church are not present, there is need for us to look elsewhere. And we would be duty-bound to, to forsake a church and join to another church. We need to make sure we understand these three marks rightly. Because when the Reformers spoke of these three marks, they did not mean by preaching whether the pastor has three points or five points, whether he uses illustrations or, or whether he doesn't tell stories. No. By the faithful proclamation of the gospel, the Reformers meant, is this man preaching justification by Faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Is the content of this man's message, is it the gospel? Or is it a false gospel? That's what they meant by the faithful preaching of the word. And the same holds true for the right administration of the sacraments. This Reformers did not mean by the right administration whether a communion table was used or not, whether it was leavened bread or unleavened bread. No, what they meant was, is this a church that, where the, the idolatrous and accursed mass is said? Or is it a church that practices the Lord's Supper? 
Now, don't get me wrong, worship is important. These, these questions and, and debates that we have about these various aspects of our celebration of the Lord's Supper are important. I'm, after all, a Reformed Presbyterian. Worship is very important. I take worship seriously, and we take worship very seriously, but must be sure that we understand and, and put some of the debates we have as believers today in the right context. Danger becomes, if everything becomes a gospel issue, we might find ourselves one day all alone with no other believers. The Westminster Confession, chapter 25 on the church, says this, this Catholic church has been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. In particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure according to the doctrine of the gospel according as a doctor of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered in public worship performed more or less purely in them. And that goes back to what I talked about earlier. We're, we're getting with, with some of these questions we might have about, about our current church. We're getting at questions of okay, what does a church look like in the world? The confession very helpfully reminds us the church is more or less pure. It even says that the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. In other words, there is no perfect church. That doesn't mean we don't strive for perfection, but it does demonstrate to us that turbulence and, and difficulty is a normal aspect of being members of the militant church. And it encourages us not to put our faith in the church, but to put our faith in the power of God, to believe in that power. So in conclusion, amid difficult, turbulent ministry, let us believe in the power of God's Spirit to save cripples. We are, after all, all cripples. Let's believe the Spirit's power is not bound by environments, but we are able to grow and be saved wherever we might be. Let's make right use of the means of grace that God's Spirit, that God has given into His church and the Spirit uses to make our salvation effectual to us. And let us look forward to the perfect church promised us in the glories of heaven where we will dwell in peace, in perfect peace and unity with full and right understanding of all things. Let us look for that, not here on this earth, but in the glories of heaven. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you. Lord, our faith is weak. Help our unbelief, O Lord. Amid difficulties, amid afflictions, we can wonder and doubt your power to work, to save, to sanctify. Lord, forgive us. Remind us again and again, O Lord, of your power. Lord, we pray 
that you would build us up as a church here. That, Lord, we would grow. That where, O oh Lord, there is sin, we would repent of that sin and confess that sin to you. Lord, where there is need of growth, we would, we would put on and we would put off. Lord, build us up that we might be a church to your glory and praise. That we would be a people pleasing in your sight. Lord, we pray that we would be a people pleasing in your sight, not by the works of righteousness which we perform, but by the work of Jesus Christ who is our righteousness, our redemption, our justification, our wisdom, our sanctification. For to you belongs all the glory.